Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you very much for tuning in to this episode and for your interest in Texas history. I also want to thank all the listeners who provided feedback about the Crazy Ben Dolliver episode. That is a fun story. Everybody loves buried treasure and pirates, so if you haven't heard it, go back to the last episode and learn about some uh, potentially buried treasure around Galveston, Texas. That treasure's out there somewhere and somebody needs to go find it. One of the things that I like to do on this podcast is tell interesting stories that occur in the context of the bigger events in Texas history, because it's impossible to do a 20 or 30 minute or even an hour episode really on so many of the big events in Texas history and consider them covered fully and finally. And I think uh, attempting to do that probably does more of a disservice to the event and the people involved. So what I've decided to do, and I've mentioned this to to you listeners before, is uh, I've decided to tell stories that occur uh, within the bigger aspects of Texas history. I'm going to, I'm working on a couple episodes about Sam Houston. We're not going to cover Sam Houston in one, you know, two or three part episode. We're going to just tell stories about Sam Houston and hopefully you put all those together and you get a real good picture of the man. Well, today we're going to do the same thing with a little bit different event. We're going to head into the Texas frontier in the middle 1800s and the Indian Wars that occurred in Texas from its founding till the late 1800s. And today I'm going to tell you an incredible story of hope and survival about one of the toughest women you will ever hear of. So let's go back to 1853 and get wise about Texas. The heroine of our story is named Jane Adeline Wilson. She was born June 12, 1837 in Alton, Illinois. Alton is right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. She had nine siblings, uh, three of whom did not live to adulthood, uh, but her family ended up moving to Missouri and then later to Paris, Texas, up in Lamar County, where her mother and father unfortunately died within one day of each other, and that left six children orphaned. Jane married James Wilson in 1853. Now, when they got married, James was 19 or 20. Jane was only 15 years old. Well, James one day got the idea, having heard that everyone in California gets rich really quick, he thought that they would make their way to California and hopefully get rich. Uh, James was not alone. His father went. Some of his brothers went. There were a total of 64 people, plus children, in a wagon train headed west. It took them two months, but they finally reached the Guadalupe Mountains in West Texas after 60 days of traveling. Now, they traveled over the Marcy Trail. Let me tell you a little bit about the Marcy Trail. That would have been a very well-known trail at that time. Uh, Randolph Marcy was a U.S. Army officer. He had fought in the Mexican War, and he blazed the Marcy Trail about 1849 from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, incidentally, it was Marcy that discovered the headwaters of the Red River, which longtime listeners of this podcast will recall resulted in the litigation about the Texas and Oklahoma border that really didn't finish until the 1900s. That border was set by a treaty in 1819. And uh, once Marcy did his work and discovered that the Red River had actually forked, uh, that caused a lot of litigation. Anyway, Marcy's Trail was the road to California for Jane Wilson and 63 other people. The Wilsons and their group camped near Guadalupe Peak, And here's where their troubles began. 
So Mescalero Apaches came into camp and stole 19 head of their cattle. Now the men went out to catch the, some of the men went out to chase the Indians down. They caught them, but the Indians drove them back. So 19 cattle to the poorer, the group continued on to Isleta, which is spelled Y-S-L-E-T-A. I pronounce it Isleta. If it's pronounced differently, somebody please let me know that. Uh, Isleta was actually almost an island in the Rio Grande after the Rio Grande had changed course. It's now part of El Paso, but back then was considered a separate community. Now, there was some sort of dispute because Jane recalls that her husband James could no longer travel with the wagon train. So we don't know what happened. We don't know if the he couldn't get along with somebody else in the train or what have you, but they decided to wait until another group of pilgrims headed for California came along so they could join them. Five men decided to stay with the Wilsons. Well, they had further trouble. Mexican bandits from across the river came in and stole everything they had. They had nothing left, so it was impossible for them to continue on to California. Now, uh, they had been gone from the relative civilization of Lamar County for two months. They'd lost cattle and now all their possessions, traveling two months over some very harsh and rural area and dangerous area because that Marcy Trail, uh, which included part of the Butterfield stage route, would have crossed that Great Comanche War Trail and traveled through the heart of Comancheria, which we discussed in a previous episode. So they were lucky to have made it that far. Uh, but now they had nothing and decided that the uh, world outside East Texas was not for them and they were going to head back. So in July 1853, they started back east. Now, one day on their way back, James Wilson and his father left the camp. Now, it's Jane and uh, her accounts of what happened didn't specify what they were doing, but they, they left the others, and that was the last time that Jane Wilson ever saw her husband or her father-in-law. They never returned. Now, Jane returned to El Paso at that point, grief-stricken, regrouped, and started again for East Texas with three of her brothers-in-law and six other men. Now, two of those brothers-in-law were children. One was eight and one was 14. Jane said in uh, her later accounts that they had only seen one Indian on their way back and they felt relatively safe. Now, what Jane didn't understand at that time, no doubt, is that they were recrossing that great Comanche war trail. They keep traveling and by now it's September and they were within three days of Fort Phantom Hill right in the heart of Comanche country, right near the Great Comanche War Trail. And September began the fall migration and raiding of the Comanches down to the south. So she had no idea how unsafe she really was. Well, one day, one of the men in the party stole three head of cattle and just took off from the rest of them. The leader of the return trip to East Texas was a man named Hart, and he went after the thief So he ended up leaving Jane with two of her brothers-in-law and a Mexican man from the group. And the two brothers-in-law that were left with Jane were the 8-year-old and the 14-year-old, the 8-year-old Meredith and the 14-year-old George. Now Jane recalls that they were within three days of Fort Phantom Hill, so they thought they were safe. Now Fort Phantom Hill is located just north of present-day Abilene, Texas, and it's part of the second 
line of forts. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about this. The U.S. Army, after statehood, built two lines of forts, the first line and the second line. And these were forts on the edge of the Indian country. So they were the outermost boundary uh, within which you could feel somewhat safe because you had protection from the U.S. Army. Well, they were outside this boundary, and she thought they were close enough that they were going to be okay, but she was about to find out very differently. One day as they headed east, four Comanche Indians approached, two from the front and two from behind. The Mexican man with Jane obviously had no idea who he was dealing with and what was happening because he jumps off the wagon uh, to try and make friends, according to Jane. Well, the war whoops of the Indian warriors scared the mules pulling the wagon into running, but one of them immediately fell down, and of course they would have been harnessed together, so everything just stopped. The Indians made them unharness the mules. Then they took the Mexican man out onto the trail, stripped him naked, put him on his knees. One of them shot him with a gun. The other one began stabbing him with a large knife. And then they scalped him. Now, the Mexican man was not dead at this point, so you can imagine what a horrific scene Jane was watching along with her little brothers-in-law. Jane recalled, actually, later that one of the men took the man's scalp, put it in the man's hat, and put it on his head and started dancing around making fun of the presumably dying man. In the meantime, they tied up her brothers-in-law, bound her feet, and took them as captives, headed to the north. In the meantime, Mr. Hart, the expedition's leader, and Jane's other brother-in-law never caught the cattle thief, but they did end up at Fort Phantom Hill. Well, they immediately started back down the trail to try to go find Jane and the rest of the group, and all they found, of course, was the wagon. They go back to the fort. They get the army to send a scouting party to try to find what they now imagine are captives because they didn't find any bodies. Now, take note of that. They didn't find any bodies, including the Mexican man. They eventually came, the scouting party, that is, came upon a friendly Comanche Indian who said that a Mexican man who had been scalped actually walked into his camp. So the Army retrieved that man, and he ended up making a full recovery. Now, listeners of this podcast will recall an episode I did on Josiah Wilbarger, who was one of the few men to ever be recorded as having survived a scalping. Well, this is one of the other very few men to have ever survived a scalping, and eventually this Mexican man um, caught uh, disease. He he ended up at Fort Belknap, another one of the line of forts, uh, where he caught a disease and died. But he had survived the shooting, stabbing, and scalping, at least for a little while. Anyway, uh, the Army decided to try to call in a Comanche chief they had a relationship with. This chief was named, and I'm going to pronounce it Sanaco. It's S-A-N-A-C-O, Sanaco, and try to talk him into finding out where these captives were. So they did uh, what was very common on the frontier, and they bribed him, and they gave him $200 worth of presents. Well, Sanaco hung around a little while, finally left, eventually came back and said, well, thanks for the presents, but I didn't find anybody. So we're not sure exactly how hard he was looking, or what he actually found, but he claimed not to have found any of the captives. Well, what became of Jane? She and her two brothers-in-law were taken by the Indians, and she was suffering this entire time. They were generally abusing her, um, and then her worst nightmare occurred, and that is that an Indian squaw showed up. 
Now, in Comanche society, the men were the warriors, the hunters, the decision makers. The women did everything else. They did all the work. The Indian women were renowned for treating captives, uh, female captives, extraordinarily harshly. They were basically made slaves, um, and they were beaten regularly, and Jane was no different. They had put Jane on a mule. The mule wasn't broken, so the mule threw her off six or seven times a day, and if the mule wasn't ornery enough to throw her off as often as the Indians wanted for their entertainment, one of the Indians would take that Mexican scalp that they got and shake it in front of the mule, causing it to go crazy. Uh, they whipped Jane. They made her run through the brush, gather the animals, which, of course, tore her clothes and her skin. They threw rocks at her. Uh, Jane wrote later, quote, They seemed to study every method of putting me to death piecemeal, close quote. Uh, and, of course, uh, Jane was, um, this is a PG podcast, but she was uh, repeatedly brutalized by the male captors. Um, I've left out one important detail up to now that will blow your mind. All during this time, Jane was pregnant. She had been pregnant before they left El Paso. She was six months pregnant. So all of the brutalization, the harsh life on the trail, the exposure to the sun. They wouldn't let her drink. They would starve her for a day or two at a time. And they were making her do all the work and beating her for her trouble. All of this occurred when she was mere weeks from giving birth. Well, enough time on the mule. She finally broke the mule. And uh, when the mule was broke enough and wasn't throwing her off anymore, they took the mule away and made her walk. Walk on the rocky trail. Walk through the brush. She eventually was in such bad shape that they would make her walk ahead of them. The Indians would make her walk ahead, and then they would catch up. They would give her a head start for their own convenience because she couldn't keep up with the group. But amazingly, after all she had been through, her mind was still sharp enough to consider trying to escape, and that's exactly what she did. One day, she walked ahead to where she couldn't see her Indian captors, and she decided to hide in a brush arbor. She hid well enough that they never found her, although she heard them all around. After they rode off, she went out and saw the tracks where they had been looking for her. And now she was utterly, entirely alone. Alone with no food. She had no idea where she was, except that she was in the middle of nowhere. And she was 25 days from her capture with as extraordinarily a brutal treatment for those 25 days, as you can possibly imagine, all the while six months pregnant. Well, for three days, she stayed right where she had originally hid, just in case. She then moved half a mile away, built a shelter, and stayed there nine days because she had found a little water. She survived on berries, and she describes the uh, wolves coming around. Now, they could have been wolves at that time. They could have been coyotes or both coming within five feet of her. She remembers when she would go down to the little spring she found to drink water from, the wolves would follow her, no doubt in their mind, thinking she was on the brink of death, just as the Indians must have since they left her. A few days later, some traders came by. Now, she refers to them as traders. They were Comancheros, and they were on their way from New Mexico to trade with the Comanches. The Comancheros were a mixed group of people, that carried on business with the Comanche, uh, even though uh, it was not 
proper to do so at that time in Texas. They would trade guns and whiskey, etc. And they were not generally regarded as very nice people. But for some reason, these people were nice to Jane. No doubt when they came across her, they would probably have a hard time imagining she was even alive. They put Jane on a horse with them and took her toward the Comanche camp. But as they approached a Comanche camp, and they didn't know, and Jane didn't know if these were the same Indians or not. So they hid Jane in a ravine. They told her they'd come back for her that night, which of course they didn't. So she got a little nervous and got out of the ravine and started walking to where she thought they had gone. One of them out gathering horses found her and told her just to stay put. There were a lot of Comanches. He brought her some food, about four days rations, she says, and told her to stay in that ravine until those Comanches rode off. She got in the ravine and hearing noises and such around her ended up staying in a hollowed out cottonwood stump that she had found. She called it her house. Uh, And it was more than four days. She had run out of food, so she had to forage again while waiting for these people to return, and she had no idea whether they were going to return or not. So she was back in a terrible shape. Well, eventually, eventually the Comanches did ride off, and lo and behold, the Comancheros came back for her. They loaded her on a horse, and they set out for New Mexico. She recalls they reached Pecos, Texas, 34 days later from where they had started. So think about this trip for a minute. She had left Paris, Texas. For two months, she rides to the Guadalupe Mountains. Many more days, she rides to El Paso. She has an aborted trip east. She goes back to El Paso. She then sets out to the east, almost makes it to Abilene, captured by the Indians, taken north to who knows where she was. She ends up rescued after all this suffering, and then it's another month-plus ride, and she ends up in Pecos, Texas. And then from there, they moved on to Santa Fe. Well, she reached Santa Fe, still alive, and the territorial governor of Santa Fe at the time was a man named David Merriweather, and he took an interest in Jane's plight. He and his wife took care of Jane, and he began a letter-writing campaign to Washington, D.C., as well as to Governor Elijah Pease in Austin to tell them her story and seek aid for her. Now, in the meantime, who we haven't talked about is George and Meredith Wilson and what became of them. Well, the Comancheros, after uh, successfully rescuing Jane, went out to try to find her two brothers-in-law. They found George, but they couldn't get him released. Later, some Chickasaw Indians reached the same camp, and they managed to negotiate for George's release. And here's what they paid for 14-year-old George Wilson. Forty strands of beads, eight yards of strouting, ten pints of powder, twelve bars of lead, sixteen yards of blue drilling, a half dozen piece of pieces of paints, whatever that means, six plugs of tobacco, four butcher knives, six rounds of brass wire, 12 yards of Choctaw stripe, and they had to give the chief a little something for brokering this deal, so they gave the chief a pony, a rifle, and six plugs of tobacco. So after all of that, little George was free. Well, here's, you would think that George would just could not wait to get to civilization and get home. Well, that's not what George suggested. George actually begged them, his rescuers, to take him to the camp where his brother was being held and exchange him 
for his little brother because he thought his little brother being only eight years old would not be very useful to the Comanches and that he would be killed. Well, they didn't do that. They took him to a fort and turned him over to the authorities. But luckily, some Kickapoo Indians, also often friendly, they found Meredith Wilson and rescued him. So both brothers-in-law, children really, ended up getting rescued. And the U.S. Congress ended up paying those Kickapoos $1,000 later uh, for them rescuing Meredith. Well, meanwhile, Jane's in Santa Fe, and she's recovering. And during this time, in response to Meriwether's correspondence, Governor Pease went to the legislature, and the legislature passed a bill authorizing a $5,000 appropriation to be used at the governor's discretion to ransom any Indian captives that had been taken from Texas. And interestingly, I got a copy of the statute, and the statute specifically mentions that this fund should be used, quote, to restore Mrs. Jane Wilson to her home and friends, close quote. So Governor Merriweather's letter was obviously persuasive, and Jane Wilson was eventually restored to her home. She made it back to Paris, Texas in 1844. What an incredible journey. She began with dreams of California. She ended up with a nightmare of captivity at the hands of the brutal Comanches. I have read many accounts of Indian captives, but never one like Jane Wilson. She endured constant, severe indignity and torture. She was whipped, stoned, thrown from mules. She was forced to walk over rocks and briars. She was almost starved to death, sunburned, parched from thirst, and broken, all while six months pregnant. But she kept her wits, and she used her ingenuity and what little remaining strength she had to escape that nightmare and survive. Folks, you will not find a tougher lady anywhere. Well, after Jane made it home, she eventually remarried to a man named William Roberts, and from there has faded into history. Well, what about that baby? After all she went through, Jane Wilson had a healthy baby boy, and his name was James Garland Wilson. And one can only imagine if he ever heard the story of what was happening to him while he was yet in the womb, what he must have thought. He was born while Jane was in Santa Fe recovering, and like I mentioned, healthy. In fact, this story came to me by way of Jane's great-great-grandson, Judge Randy Wilson, the great-grandson of that little Santa Fe baby, James Garland Wilson. Judge Wilson is the judge of the 157th District Court in Harris County and a dear friend. And I want to thank him for bringing this story to my attention. And another special thanks goes to another great-great-grandson of Jane Wilson, Dr. Gary Wilson, a Ph.D. historian and Randy, Judge Randy Wilson's brother. He wrote a very well-researched article on Jane's capture entitled Hostage Among the Comanche. And they also provided me with Jane's firsthand narrative of her experience. So thank you, gentlemen, for sharing this story. Jane Adeline Wilson was an incredible woman. Well, now we come to the part of the episode I call Getting There, where I tell you how you can go see a couple of the locations I mentioned in the story. I'm going to tell you I do not recommend trying to ride a horse, wagon, or walk from Paris, Texas to El Paso. That is not a good idea. But there are a couple of spots you could see between there. Uh, one is Fort Phantom Hill. It's part of the Texas Forts Trail, and it's located at 10818 FM 600 
in Abilene, Texas. It's a historic site, very interesting. Some ruins remain of Fort Phantom Hill, and you can look west and get a feel for what it must have been like in 1853. Unfortunately, we do not know for sure where Jane is buried. She married a man named William Roberts. William Roberts, uh, her husband, second husband, is buried in the Oakwood Cemetery in Whitesboro, Texas. We think that Jane may be buried there near him, uh, but there's not a marker. So either uh, maybe it disappeared. Those markers obviously are very weathered, but we can't say for sure where she's buried. Isleta is now part of the El Paso community, and Isleta was home to a mission that was first constructed in 1692, and it's one of the oldest sites in Texas. The mission was reconstructed in the 1700s, which is the building that stands today. It's part of the Catholic parish Our Lady of Mount Carmel. The mission is located at 131 South Zaragoza Road in El Paso. So if you're out there, take a look at the beautiful old Spanish architecture. And I can't resist suggesting that you visit Jane Wilson's great-great-grandson, Judge Randy Wilson, 157th District Court in Harris County. Just pop in and say hello and tell him I sent you. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Wise About Texas and head over to the Wise About Texas Facebook page and give us a like. Also, if you get a minute, leave a review on iTunes. I want to thank everyone for the wonderful reviews that are on there. It helps Texas history fans find the show. I hope you've enjoyed another journey through Texas history and go out and do something for Texas today. Until next time. God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.